Welcome to the Build a Life After Loss podcast, where we help you to build a life of purpose and joy. Our aim is to encourage your hope in the future and strengthen your confidence. I'm your host, Julie Clough, Certified Life Coach and Grief Recovery Specialist. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 52, Coming Back After Loss with Shelby Forsythia. Shelby is our very special guest today. I'm excited to share this interview with you, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts about what is shared. She is the very talented host of the podcast, Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss, which is one of the very first grief podcasts that I listened to a couple of years ago when I first became interested in podcasts and the value of the conversations in this space. Loss and grief's first impressions on Shelby's life occurred when she was a college student. When it did, loss and grief piled on hard and culminated in her most impactful loss. We're going to talk about her loss story, how grief impacted her. We're going to talk about secondary losses. And we're also going to talk about those things that helped Shelby to start re-engaging and rebuilding her life. Let me tell you a little more about Shelby, and then we'll jump right into the interview. Shelby Forsythia is the author of Permission to Grieve and podcast host of Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. After the unexpected death of her mother in 2013, she became a student of grief and set out on a lifetime mission to explore the oft-misunderstood human experience of loss. Through her book, weekly podcasts, and one-on-one grief guidance, she helps grieving people find direction, get support, and cultivate radical self-compassion after devastating loss. Shelby is a certified grief recovery specialist also. She's a Reiki practitioner and an intuitive grief guide. Her work has been featured on Huffington Post, Bustle, and Optimal Living Daily. She currently lives in Chicago. Let's jump right into the interview. Well, I have Shelby Forsythia here, who is a super talented grief podcast host and a number of other things that we're going to learn about today. But um, Shelby, let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about what brought you into this arena. Yeah, this is a fun question because I never uh, looked around as a kid and thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a grief podcaster. A, because podcasting was not a thing when I was a kid. Uh, I believe, I mean, it's a relatively new medium. Uh, but B, because I didn't know or understand the kind of impact that grief would have on my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to tell people that I had a really idyllic childhood. It was very upper middle class, suburban, piano lessons, slumber parties, band uniforms, like all the things were kind of, I never had to question where things were coming from, where my next meal was coming from, whether or not my parents were going to split up because those were not realities in my life. And of course, I kind of loosely knew people whose families were struggling through things. And through our church, I would see and understand that other people had hardship, but it was just not something that touched me for a good chunk of my life, probably about the first 18 or 19 years of my life. And that looking back and as I continue to get older and hear more and more about my friends' lives and guests' lives who come on the show, my my podcast coming back, um, I recognize how much of a gift that was to lead a childhood that was totally uninterrupted. Uh, but then I like to jokingly and not jokingly tell people that when grief swept through. It was absolutely merciless. And I appeared on another um, interview series called, I don't recall what it's called. It was by the International Grief Institute. I believe it's called Stories of Hope or something along those lines. Uh, And the caption for my interview was coming out the other side of four years of hell, because this is how I literally refer to what happened to me. And it was four years of nonstop losses all in a row. And the first one didn't seem very significant. Uh, When I was 19 or 20, my dad lost his job. And job loss, while it is a significant grief event, is not death. And so it's not ranked very high on the Richter scale. But that's the first time my family experienced any kind of instability. And so we kind of stopped going out to eat. My dad kind of stuck around the house a little bit more. There was like financial stressors and things that came along with that, that I would hear more conversations of when largely that was sheltered. Uh, And then in the fall of that year, my sister and I witnessed my dad having 
a minor seizure in the sense that he wasn't on the ground convulsing. It was he was having hallucinations and laughing out of context. And we were really concerned. I believe I was 19 or 20 and my sister's about two years younger than me. And we approached my mom and they were going to bed and we were like, something really weird just happened with dad and we want it looked at. And he, you know, kind of brushed it off as being stressed or what have you. And then less than six months later, he was diagnosed with two identical brain aneurysms, one on either side of his head uh, that were really really close to rupturing or bursting. They didn't know when. Um, and we had the the good fortune of living near Duke Hospital, but my life and recognizing and understanding that he may die at any moment was absolutely disastrous for me. And it, it was just, like, it totally tore my world apart. I remember where I was when I got the call and he went through two separate surgeries because they weren't close to each other. So he had to open up one side of his head, operate there, close it, wait for it to heal, open up the other side of his head, operate, wait for it to heal. And in the midst of all that, when doctors go digging around in your brain, stuff happens. Like you forget who you, he forgot who we were. He was calling us by the wrong name. He couldn't drive anymore. His emotions changed. Uh, And our house kind of became the center for meal trains and carpools and prayer circles and all of these other things. And all of a sudden, we became the center of a support network for grief, which was, again, a totally foreign experience to me. And we were struggling for for about a year. And the following summer, after all of this happened in 2012, we, we all kind of thought we were out of the woods. I was, you know, coming out of my sophomore year of college. I had a sales internship. And uh, my mom called us into their bedroom for what she was calling a family meeting. And we were like, this is never good. It's going to be about money. It's going to be about we're moving all of a sudden. Something's Mm going to happen. And uh, this was just as my dad was really beginning to heal. And she looked my sister and I both dead in the face. And she said, I've just been diagnosed with breast cancer. Wow. And it I mean, again, it was just like one thing after another. And I felt like I had a guest come on my show and describe it as being washed up on these boulders near the shore and just getting beaten with wave after wave after wave and nothing. The tide never goes out. It never goes down. And so for another year, we were thrust into the being the center of a massive grief event and the meal train started again and the prayer circle started again, the email started again. And on top of that, the financial stress and then literally watching my mother physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually change as a result of going through the experience of having a pretty severe form of breast cancer and things like losing her hair and her nails becoming brittle and just becoming tired and and morphing into this totally different person And it was really, really hard. And in the midst of all of this, I came out of the closet as a queer woman Mm -hmm. to my parents, my family. uh, And it was kind of well-received, but not really. I was also working three jobs and in college at the time too, because my parents' number one wish was, please don't stop going to school. That was the case for my sister and me both. And so I would have panic attacks every time the phone rang. I was trying to figure out who I was as a human in the world. I was trying to figure out where I was going in my life. And every little thing was falling apart. There were good moments in here, but it, for the most part, if I could do one piece of my life over, it would be this, but I would take all the losses out of it, which I know is impossible. Mm-hmm. And um, she went into remission in January of 2013 from breast cancer. And we finally thought, we're like, oh, finally, we're out of the woods. We're totally done. We don't have to go back to Duke Hospital except, you know, once or twice a year. The carpools can stop. The meal trains can stop. People praying for us can stop. Not that you ever want people to stop quote, <laughs> praying for you, but right, but right. for not good reasons. Exactly. And, um, and, and they went on a, a, a trip together that was sponsored by a wonderful organization called Little Pink Houses of Hope that does uh, vacations for families who have been affected by breast cancer. And, you know, my parents were finally getting to enjoy being empty nesters with my sister and I off to college. And then in November of 2013, so about 10 months later, we got a call that what we thought was pneumonia for my mom or like a cold that wouldn't go away was the return of her breast cancer and it had metastasized into her lungs and into her chest and into places where after one surgery doctors were like we can keep doing more surgeries but at this point it will not it will not save her life it will prolong it and she 
she called another family meeting with all of us in the living room. She's like, I'm ready to be done. Mm-hmm. She said, if this is the, if this is the hand I've been dealt, I'm ready to be done. And she wasn't ready to die by any means. She was not ready to die, but she was like, if this is going to be it, then I'm going to choose to not die in a hospital and not die under the knife or whatever circumstances would have befallen her had she been in the medical system. And uh, we got that news probably about a month later on December 19th, that there was nothing more that they could do. And so we called in hospice. We had them, you know, set up hospital beds in our home and bring in medications. And she saw pastors and friends and all these other things in and out of the house. And we thought we had a while on hospice. I think they told us anywhere from six weeks to four or five months probably. And we thought that was a pretty good stint to to wrap things up, to say goodbye, to fly in family and friends. And then she died in a week. Wow. And, yeah. And she was gone the day after Christmas. And it absolutely just, when I say the entire foundation, the bottom went out of my life, it did. It was gone. Like I immediately plunged into this place of darkness and blackness and I will never recover from this instantly and stayed there for a very, very long time after she died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you think about, I mean, my goodness, you know, loss after loss and then have this experience and, you know, remind me, she went into remission. When, when did they, when did they think she'd gone into remission? In January of 2013. January. January. And then she died in December of 2013. Yeah. So to have that hope, you know, it's just a roller coaster ride. To have that hope of remission and then, you know, go through those months and then have this new new discovery. Wow, how painful. Yeah. And it's kind of that thing, I don't know if I'm going to phrase this exactly the way I want to, but like we always cling to this illusion of safety. Like, okay, now I'm safe. Okay, now I can breathe. Okay, now it's going to be better for a while or stable. And that's kind of what I felt like I was after. That's what I was chasing for that entire four-year period of like, when can I catch a break? And so when we thought we were there, we were stoked, man. When in reality, the biggest shoe of all was about to drop from the sky. Yeah. And to go through that when you, you know, like I, I, I love the way you told about how your life had been pretty uneventful as far as grief experiences. And then here you are just hitting young adult, adult years and to have this boom, boom, boom like this. And obviously the most difficult experience was, was your mother um, losing your mother like that. And at Christmas time, you know, I, I think sometimes we don't talk enough about the secondary losses you know, obviously losing your mother is huge, but then to have it happen over Christmas and how that impacts your Christmases every year after that. And yeah, so tell us a little bit about what grief looked like for you when you lost your mom. Well, I'm glad that you touched on secondary loss because this is actually a workshop I led on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise, which happened in March of this year. And it's called Honoring Secondary Loss was the name of the workshop. So I'm really excited that you like intuitively picked that up. Um, And there's three different kinds, or I believe there's three different kinds of secondary loss. The first is immediate, the things that you lose instantly the moment a person dies. The second category is gradual. So the things that you lose over time. Uh, And then the last category is surprise or unexpected. So the things that you never thought would be tied to losing somebody that you love, but oh my God, all of a sudden I have a a client. She's like, I can't look at the color purple anymore. Like she's like, it just infuriates me. And that's a surprise to me to all of a sudden hate purple because the person who I lost really loved the color purple. And now it's, it's interesting kind of what triggers us in the aftermath of loss. And so, oh my gosh, I mean, instantly I lost my ideas of of home, of safety, of course, which we touched on before, of faith in a God that would save us if we prayed hard enough. And in that vein, kind of like this idea of justice or a world that's black and white based on, you know, the, if you're a good enough person, bad things don't happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, innocence, 
Absolutely. There were so many things I had known existed but never seen with my eyes, and I watched her die. I did not watch her take her final breaths, but I watched her in the process of dying, and that in itself was a brand new experience to me. And then in an instant, you know, my relationships to my father, my sister, and most importantly, myself drastically changed Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of her loss. I think in terms of gradual losses, that's when I really started to ache for, I mean, weeks out, months out. Gradual can seem like it happens over years, but gradual can also be, you know, as soon as the news really sinks in. But I I miss her voice terribly. Mm -hmm. She was a riot and she was loud and she cackled when she laughed. And I missed that. And I still miss it. And it's funny because she and I sound the same when we speak, but if we were on a podcast together, you'd know who was who. It'd be hard to tell sometimes when we laugh, but you'd know who was who. And I miss the sound of her voice. And then a a few of the first dreams I had about her after she died were of being physically close to her, whether it was being hugged by her or one of my favorite dreams I actually had was of uh, shrinking down to the size of a toddler and taking a nap behind her legs on the couch, which is what my sister and I used to do when we were very, very little. And that was one of the very first dreams I had about her after she died and just missing, missing that physicality because like my dad's great. My sister's great. My aunts and uncles are all phenomenal, but no one hugs me like my mom did. Um, and then there's like some surprise losses too. So, I mean, I struggle if I ever have to drive by Duke hospital when I visit North Carolina and I see the signs for it as an exit off the interstate. And I'm like, that still bothers me at like a core level because for so long, my sister and I were both shuttled there to visit either her or my dad, uh, as they were having procedures and things done. And then there's you know, things like faith and organized religion that I still reckon with at times that still just like frustrate me or infuriate me in ways that I don't entirely understand. And I'm still trying to work that out. And then I think a surprise, maybe even in a positive way, is that Christmas used to really, really suck. And we were happy in a dark way that she didn't die on Christmas day. And it's like, well, at least she didn't ruin Christmas day, but there's no way really around it. No matter kind of where the loss lands, it still kind of ruins the entire season. Um, whether it's Christmas or, or Easter or the 4th of July or whatever, or somebody's birthday, the worst is when people die on your birthday. And I've heard stories of that from, from people who've come on my podcast, but um, the older I've gotten, Christmas is still bittersweet, but I've started to enjoy it again. And that's kind of nice to be able to reclaim that. So that's an unexpected secondary loss that I had that I think is not he- not healing in the way that, oh, it's fixed now and I'm happy again, but it's morphed into something where I can appreciate other people's joy again. And that was really, really hard. I'm, I'm going on year six now without her. Mm-hmm. And I'm only just now feeling like my eyeballs are are deglazing or defrosting from the grief of losing her, if I can phrase it that way. Yeah. So what do you think, like when, because I, I can't imagine, you know, it's so difficult. Those, those holidays, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, um, even Easter, depending on, you know, our family, just our family dynamics, there's certain holidays that mean a lot to us. And with her, with her passing, like right at that time, and those holidays are difficult for us after our loss anyway. They just are. Mm-hmm. And especially in those first few years. What do you think has made the difference? What, why do you think that now you're starting to feel the joy of that season again? That's a wonderful question. I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that before. Um, the, the thing that comes to mind immediately is I'm allowed to. And there's like, I immediately drop my shoulders. I get chills saying this out loud. So I know it's the correct answer (laughs) Um, for me. It's the correct answer for me is like, I'm allowed to feel joy again. Uh And I think for the first, for the first year I was mad because of course I was mad and I was grieving because of course I was grieving. Like, what else do you do when somebody you love dies? Um, And then slowly, probably in like year three, four, five, it was like, I should be upset because she died around this time. So I'm supposed to be grieving. Right. Even if it wasn't feeling it as intensely as the first year that she died. And now I'm like, you're allowed to feel joy in the midst of this. And it's not, you know, 
you're allowed to feel only joy because then that limits you to the other side of the the spectrum, the other side of the pendulum. Mm -hmm. But in this instance, I'm like, oh, I'm allowed to have joy as part of this experience. I think that um, grievers, including myself, often feel like we need to show or display that we're grieving just to prove either to ourselves or to others that we are. And so if we're not sad or upset, it's like the person is forgotten or that we've forgotten them or that we're not unhappy enough or that we don't care or that we don't remember. And I'm like, oh no, I, can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> well, we tend to be very family <laughs> friendly, so okay, we, okay. we avoid it. <laughs> well, I'll, say, I'll say, I still give a crap about what happened <laughs> and I still vehemently remember like with all of the core cells in my body the day that she died, the minute that she died, the moment I got the news. And it's like my heart is expanding. It's like now there's room for joy, but I've had to actively work on creating it. But also I've had to work on actively welcoming it because for the first two, three years, I was like, no, that's not allowed here. I will never feel joy again, which is a perfectly rational thought for grievers. This idea of I will never feel joy again. I will never come back from this. Um, but to even start to look around and recognize that other people are joyful and then be next to joyful people and then consider joy for yourself and then allow joy in or welcome it in. I mean, it's been some massive hard work, but only just this year, maybe a smidgen last year, have I really started to crack that door open to joy is allowed to come in again. Yeah. And when you say joy is allowed to come in again, who is giving you that permission? Is it something people have said or are you giving yourself that permission? Oh, I think it's both. I think that's a great question too. I think it's both because the ultimate permission comes from me. Mm -hmm. I think grievers are their own ultimate permission granters. Like you can hear it from a thousand people. Somebody could have told me this, you know, last year, year before, blah, blah, blah. And like, it would have sunk in at some soil level, but not at like a bedrock concrete core of the earth level. Mm -hmm. It was something I needed to feel and experience for myself. And know, kind of in experiencing that, that this was not going to erase or overwhelm my grief or my memories of my mom, because I cling to that very tightly. My grief belongs to me and I will not let it go anywhere. (laughs) I am, I am attached to that thing for as much as it is extremely painful for me. I don't want to let it go and I don't want to release it. Um, because it has not only because it's made me who I am now, but because without it, the joy doesn't seem so bright by contrast. And so to be able to hold both of them together is really powerful. I think too, though, at least in the beginning stages, I needed to hear from other people who were feeling joy after loss, whether they were speaking directly to me or they came through books or they came through other podcasts like yours or like mine, or they were just like on the internet or in a TED talk somewhere. I was like, I need to see examples of this happening because I bet it can, but I don't know how to go about it or I don't know what it looks like in practice. And so to see and look around and watch these other people who are in that place of I'm feeling joy again and holding space for grief, I'm like, that's what I want to model. So how can I almost be a disciple of that, if I can use a, a biblical word there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you, you're so right, because I think that idea of looking for examples, if we don't believe that joy is possible after grief, we won't look for it. We won't actively, like you talked about, you know, you actively sought for things that would help you. Yeah. I'm always searching for things. And there's a phrase that I spoke about. I believe it's in episode 24 of Coming Back. It's called Becoming More Me with Alexia Leachman. The top of the show, I usually devote 10 or 15 minutes to answering a listener question, but I talked about this notion of grief launching us into what I like to call the involuntary scavenger hunt. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, we're in the middle of the woods all alone we got a raincoat and a pair of boots. And all of a sudden we have to find the building blocks of our new life again. And we have to find the things that work for us now that we're grieving people. And so much of it, we didn't want to be on this journey, which is the involuntary part. But the scavenger hunt piece of it is that so many old identities and feelings and behaviors don't match who we are anymore. And so we have to start picking up and putting down 
all of these new resources. And if you pick it up and it works for you, hang on to it for a little bit. And if it doesn't resonate at all, even if it used to be like the cornerstone of your life, put it down, put it down for a while. You can always come back and pick it back up. But, but this notion of having to go around searching for and looking for the things that speak to you again in the aftermath of loss is like a very, very real thing. The involuntary scavenger hunt. Absolutely. And, and, Honestly, like we don't pay any attention and, and it's obvious from your story and the way you shared that kind of your earlier experiences and then the way th- these things hit you, it's, it's not like we're trained in grief before we experience it. Right. So we end up in this foreign land and then we're looking for the map, right? <laughs> we're looking for the map. We're looking for the map to help us with that, that scavenger hunt to kind of figure out where we are and how we fit into the world again and how we can navigate this new land that we find ourselves in. So it just becomes a complete, like you said, involuntary, surprising place that we find ourselves in. Yeah. And I don't think there's a way to prepare. Even if you knew, even if we all got textbooks and handbooks on what happens when I would love a textbook or handbook on what happens when death happens, like what death looks like, end of life care, blah, blah, like the logistical aspect of it. But the process of experiencing someone you love dying and then going through the experience of grief, it's such a unique Mm -hmm. experience that I don't even know if I, there was just no way to prepare for it. Um, And I felt blindsided for my own reasons. There's this, like, I don't think it's a real mathematical formula, but there's, your relationships are defined by both time and intensity. So the length of time that you knew them and how deep you felt the relationship was. And so you can grieve for somebody you knew for six months if the relationship was deep, but you can also grieve for somebody who you knew your entire life, uh, but maybe didn't have as deep of a relationship with. And, um, but then there's also these other factors of, you know, when did you get the news of the death? How quickly did they die? What did they die from? Were you there with them when they died? Were there things that were unresolved? There's all these like 80,000 factors that get factored in about how severe is this grief? And then really at the end of the day, they don't matter because your grief is 100% intensity for you. And my grief is 100% intensity for me. Like I just feel it at 100% and you're going to feel yours at 100% and all of these factors kind of fall by the wayside. So there's really no way to, you can't mentally prepare for a heart experience. No, you really can't. It's, you are absolutely right. It's, it's an experience that, that is so unique and so, yeah, there's just no way, there's just no way to prepare for it. And, and also, you know, everyone's experience, even within the same family, you have a sister and your experience with losing your mom is totally different than your sister's experience losing your mom. And it's just interesting how we, we experience things at this very individualized level. So uh, you, you've mentioned a few times that you weren't with your mom when she passed away. Mm-hmm. How, did, well, how did you get the news? So my dad called me. I was nearby. We were, um, I mean, blessing in disguise, but also still not 100% grateful for it to this day. Uh, My mom died while both my sister and I were home on winter break from college. And so we had finished exams and we came home because that's what you do when you're done with exams and it's winter break. Um, And people would come by the house on a pretty regular basis to quote unquote, get us out of the house. Because I think that other people sensed that being in a house where someone was dying is hard. At this, in, in one hand, it was exactly where I wanted to be because I didn't want to miss a second of it. Like I didn't want to come off guard duty. But then at the same time, I was like, yes, please get me out of here. This is the worst experience of my life. And so it was very hard to decide whether to stay or to go. Um, but I was dating a woman at the time who lived about an hour and a half away. And she was like, I'm going to be with my family on Christmas Eve and Christmas day. But I said, okay, if I drive down and take you to lunch the day after. And I said, yeah, you know, things aren't necessarily changing here. And I had totally become a different person in the aftermath of loss. And so she and I have had a lot of conversations over the years about how that impacted both of us. But we'd gone uh, to this little diner in my hometown, probably about, I don't know, 12 minutes away by car from my house and as we were paying the bill to leave is when I got the phone call from my dad and I knew exactly what it was. 
uh, that she had died. And so I, my knees gave out when we were in the parking lot, like we were on the way out the door and I just collapsed in the parking lot because I could like my, my body could not hold me up anymore at that point. And it was just the worst. It was the worst thing that ever happened. And you know, what's interesting is that a lot of people hold regret or remorse or tension for not being able to be there physically as their loved one was dying and that's never really been a regret of mine. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I could really give you a good reason for it. I think it's, again, it's a combination of about 80,000 things. Um, part of it is because I felt like I said what I needed to say as she was dying. She, I would sit next to her and talk to her, even though I knew she couldn't talk back. Um, and probably because for the last 36 hours or so, she was non, nonverbal, non really communicative at all. Like her hands had stopped moving, her body had stopped moving we could hear her breathing and we knew she could hear us. And so we would come sit next to her and, and sing or have conversations or my dad would be giving her more meds and stuff. But, um, but she declined very, very quickly. And some part of me even then knew it's like you, you did everything you possibly could with less than a week's time to -hmm. say goodbye. Um, And so it's not something that I have regret over. Do I wish I could still talk to her now? Oh yeah. Like absolutely. But to Mm -hmm. not be, at her bedside is not really a large regret of mine. Yeah. Wow. That just, you know, the picture that you paint of your knees going out, it just speaks to the, uh, there's no word for it, but the overwhelming experience of loss, just the overwhelming experience. It's not only emotional, but affects us physically as well. Grief is full body. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you end up going back to college right after that? I imagine that would have been super hard because when, yeah, like that you're experiencing grief, it just takes over. It's, we, we have to make room for it. And so I'm just curious what, what you decided to do. I did. I think that might be one of the, that's something I regret. <laughs> I don't mind that I wasn't at my mom's bedside. I regret going back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the reason that I did, I think was twofold. One, it was because I knew it was what my mom and my dad would have wanted for me. And so to continue along their linear path felt like in a time when there's nothing else I could do, it felt like something I could do. And then simultaneously, the grief recovery method, which is the modality that I was trained in, talks about the six grief myths and identifying them in my own life. My number one of the grief myths that I operate by is get busy. Like if you're just busy enough, the grief will go away, which is totally a lie, which is why they call it a grief myth. But mm-hmm. somehow I thought that going back to the routine of school and the culture and you know, going back to the jobs I worked and all that would, would not... I didn't think they would fix me, but I thought they would keep me going. And at a point in time when I was like, I don't even know if I can keep going, that was something. And for what it's worth, it felt nice to be productive. But at the same time, every single day I was dying. I was absolutely dying in my own way, being there partially because, and this is something I talk about on coming back to with people who have lost uh, people in their 20s, is that for the most part, teen and 20 something people don't know what the experience of death is like, whether it's a parent, a sibling, uh, a child, anything like that. And so to go back to this culture of, you know, boozing up parties on the weekend and volunteer activities and just like getting grades in class, like all of a sudden numbers and performances and like metrics didn't really register with me. I was like, why are we measuring ourselves by our grade point average? Like it just didn't compute anymore. Um, I think in terms of self-care, one thing that I did was quit one of my jobs. And so I only had two when I came back. But something that I really did that I probably shouldn't was graduate with honors. And so I took 18 hours worth of classes and wrote essentially what was uh, a graduate or a master's level thesis on top of the coursework that I was doing because I I had done all of the coursework beforehand. I was like, I'm not going to do the last six months of college and wimp out on this thing I've been doing for four years. I just could not bring myself to do it. Um, but trying to, trying to relate to people was really, really hard and trying to do anything beyond go to class, go to work, go to bed, maybe eat was absolutely beyond me. It's, I still wish, I don't know what I would have done with a year off, but I wish I would have taken a year off. 
Yeah. It's amazing that you could concentrate to, to finish. Oh, I could not. (laughs) Yeah. I just, you know, Um, that's mind blowing to me (laughs) to think about, to try to, to focus on something at that level. But I can, there's so many pieces to what you just talked about. I mean, one going back to college, it sounds like what felt like honoring your parents and with just, you know, your mom's recent death, like what, the most important thing is to honor her. And so going back to college kind of sounded like it really represented that opportunity to honor her. Not only that, but then to to have a reason to get up in the morning and, you know, staying busy that, like you said, that myth that we, we believe that if we just stay busy enough, when we, when we stop being busy, the grief will be gone. (laughs) Like, like it's a visitor that left, you know, which is, is not what happens. That visitor is still there. The minute we, the minute we let up, and and I and I like what you said about you know going back to college that that change of perspective, and recognizing that you know a bunch of nineteen to twenty two year olds are they weren't likely to have the experiences that would be very supportive to you. So how did you navigate that? Oh, this is always hard to talk about because I, I don't know that I did. I mean, I'm, I survived, but I don't know if I navigated it very well. Um, truthfully, and I did a podcast episode about this as well on coming back about memory and what happens to our brains in the aftermath of loss. Truthfully, I can tell you kind of some details of what happened the first six months after my mom died, but there's a lot of blackout periods as well. And it's not because I was drinking because um, I actually started having allergic reactions to things like, like gluten and dairy and, and soy and stuff after my mom died, which pointed to a larger health crisis that was coming later down the road. But so I didn't really drink a ton, but there were whole entire periods of my life that because I was using my brain power on working and concentrating in class and trying to hold normal conversations uh, that I don't remember really what happened. Like none of it got saved. It's like the, the computer program shut down before I had a chance to save my work and then there's no way to recover it. And mm. so I'm like, I don't know what happened for about six or seven months of my life after my mom died. The only thing that I can really point to aside from leaning on people who knew my mom in life. So people like my dad, my sister, uh, and two of my aunts, who are my mom's sisters, I had phone conversations with them on a regular basis, um, was one of my professors who was in her mid-40s at the time. And I walked into class one day, and I was just having a time of it. Most of my days, <laughs> um, especially in January, February, March, I was just having a time of it. And she I would speak of her as an intuitive person and she led the whole lecture. And at the end of the class, she pulled me aside and she was like, you are walking around with a black cloud over your head. Do you want to come talk about it? And she didn't, you know, she didn't say I needed to fix myself. She didn't say I needed to do anything with it, but she knew what had happened in my life. I had emailed all my professors and, or somehow all of them knew. Um, And the instant I went and sat on her couch in her office, I just immediately broke down and sobbed. I was like, I don't know how I'm doing this right now. I don't know how I'm alive. I'm just so sad. I'm so sad. And uh, she and her little couch in her office became like the teeny tiny little rock lighthouse that I clung to for those six months and beyond because she had, what I didn't know at the time is that she had experienced losses in her own life. And so she could see them in others. And kind of had that compassion and that enveloping arm, for lack of better phrasing. I know you can't see me moving my hands, but I don't know if you've ever seen like like chickens or ducks like stick a wing out and then they grab their little chicks and put them underneath them uh, to keep them warm. But that was kind of what happened. And she never requested that I get better or move move on or fix it. I don't even know if those words were in her vocabulary, but she was one of the few people that saw me. And because I was in her class either two days a week or three days a week. She was somebody who kept pretty constant tabs on me. And that was, that was a gift. That was a gift. That was definitely a gift because so many things that she did there, even, even you sharing your loss and, and for you to say that you realized later that she had experienced loss. So often when we go to share 
our experience, people want to share their experience. <laughs> yes. And then it becomes difficult for us to really get out, you know, what we need to get out. And by what a what a gift. Like what a gift that she was willing to listen without overwhelming the conversation with her own losses, that she was willing to listen without judgment, without expectation. That's a tremendous gift and a real lesson for all of us who who interact with people who are grieving. Well, and you know something funny too that I'm just now remembering is that sometimes I would be too tired to talk, in which case I would just fall asleep on her couch mm-hmm. in her office in the middle of the afternoon. And even that, the word that's coming to me right now is grace. Even that was its own kind of grace because it felt like it felt like being watched over. And she's like, I don't give a crap that you just fell asleep on my couch. My office. Like I didn't wake up and she was staring at me being like, okay, now get out. It was very like, however you're going to show up today is acceptable. And if that's going to be snoring on my couch in the middle of the afternoon, I have to turn away my students who are looking for guidance or my professors that want to talk about curriculum or whatever. I mean, that's what she did. And it, I mean, the older I get, the more it confounds me because I have friends who are professors or teachers and to understand and know how busy their lives and schedules are and how full their plates are. And yet she took the time to say, come into my office, talk to me. Yeah, you can take a nap here. Absolutely. If that's what you need today, like, holy cow, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a gift and it's a miracle that you had that connection that you had somebody that was willing to be that safe place for you. Yeah. Wow. The really, really remarkable as you look back and and I can certainly (laughs) relate to your, your thoughts about how just kind of this blackout period, right? I can, I can, I can understand that. I can relate to that. And I'm sure many of the people listening can go, Oh yeah, you know what that is. Um, But as you look back, are there things that you look at and you go, boy, I'm so glad I did this. Like in the moment, we don't even realize that this was a good idea. We're just doing what we hope is going to help. But looking back, can you see things that you're so glad that you did or things that you wish that you had done differently? Mm. That really helped you like come to terms or, start moving from that raw grief into a place where you are more comfortable? I think this is going to revolve around the same person. Mm -hmm. The answer to this, this is what's coming to the forefront of my brain right now. But one of the first things I did after my mom died was break up with my girlfriend, the one who was with me when my mom died and actually drove me back to the house. And it was kind of one of the best things I ever did for myself in my grief because it was the moment I stopped trying to make other people understand what I was going through. Mm. And I'm just now putting this to words. I've never said this out loud before Um, because she just could not wrap her head around why I was so sad. And she even, this was back when like Tumblr was really popular as a blogging platform. And she made this blog post that just read, why did she have to die? And when I asked her about it, I thought it had pertained to my mom. And she's like, no, it's about you. Where did you go? Why did you die? Mm. And there was no way, I mean, she had never experienced the loss of a parent or the loss of a loved one at the level that I had either. And so there was this lack of understanding that came in. And I don't think there was a lack of empathy on her part. It was just like program not found. Like it just was not in her Rolodex of experiences from which to draw from. And so she she didn't know how to bring things to the table for me when I was no longer the person that I used to be. And I had no idea how to tell her what I was going through or how to understand me. Um, And cutting ties with her was probably one of the best things I ever did for myself in my grief, but probably also one of the hardest because in the aftermath of losing my mom, I was like, wow, my entire life is crumbling. I didn't even have her to to lean on. It's another loss. It's another loss. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and conversely, it was probably one of the things that I regret the most as well, because in, in trying to stop making people understand, I also pushed them away. My expectations of people in general as an umbrella statement grew very, very slim 
I was like, I don't expect anybody to understand. And so it was very, very isolated and very, very closed off for that first. I mean, I'm going to say going on two years after my mom died, I did not have a lot of faith in people to, to know how to be there for me, support me, um, see me in the way that grieving people need to be seen in their pain and their heartache. Um, and so, I mean, it's probably like two sides of the same coin. I said no to people who didn't understand what I was going through, kind of in favor of people that did, like this professor. I had maybe one or two relatives that kind of could companion me in this, but conversely, where I had been very extroverted and outgoing before, I pushed a massive amount of people away in the aftermath of loss because I was like, I just don't know what to do with this. I have no faith in people and I have no bandwidth for people. And so it was very much, I know you can't see me, but I'm turning my hand over. It was very much two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's such a tough thing, isn't it? Because, because you, you, you are in this space where your loss is consuming, your grief is consuming. And when it's consuming, it becomes a part of who you are. And then you change and then therefore your relationships change. So it's trying to figure out how to not isolate, but at the same time, it just becomes part of the equation. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a curious, cause I, so I can, I can, I can feel your, your thoughts on this, like, you know, two sides of the same, same dilemma. It's like on one, on, on one side, taking care of ourselves means that we might have to distance ourselves from people that might even be unkind. And at the same time, you know, trying to, trying to keep from being isolated. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now, because you've had a podcast for a while and you mentioned it earlier. It's called coming back. And tell us a little bit about like, why did you decide to like step into this world of grief and start offering, start offering things for people who are grieving, start offering like the podcast. You do some other things as well. I know. So what, what brought that about? I think it all started with me and my exploration and research of grief. I jokingly refer to myself on coming back as a student of grief in that I'm still treating it like my biggest research project ever. Like somebody's going to expect me to write a thesis on it at some point. Um, and especially after the numbness wore off of my mom's loss and I started kind of coming out of the fuzz and kind of seeing clearly again, I was like, all right, and kind of going back to what you and I were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, I started looking around for other examples of people who this had happened to. I was like, I know I'm not alone. It feels like it, but I know I'm not intuitively also. So where are they? Where are the examples of this? Where is the, where's the proof, basically? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know where all of those answers were and what they were made of. And so I instantly started going to the library again, which is something I hadn't done since like middle school, which was a weird connection with my mom because she used to take my sister and I to the library every week in the summer to check out books. And so going to the library again was an odd, neat connection to her again. Mm -hmm. But instead of being drawn to like mystery novels as a Nancy Drew girl, mm -hmm. I started getting drawn to the sociology and psychology sections where all the grief books were. And I was like, I wonder if this will have something in it for me. And I just started cracking the spines on books. And if they, again, with the involuntary scavenger hunt, if they weren't interesting, I put them down. And I was like, maybe later. And I've picked up books now that I tried to read at the beginning, and now they make sense. And so that's suffice it to say, if there's a great book that somebody's given you that you just aren't resonating with, maybe try it again in four or five years, and maybe it'll click then. Um, but uh, so I started researching what I was going through, and I would highlight and take notes. And like, I had a whole document in my computer where I would just write down all the things that spoke to me in my experience. And I was like, this is true. This is true. This is true. Oh, this is what this means. Oh, this is the new definition of grief. Oh, this is a grief myth. And this is where I found out about the six myths of grief and that the five stages were totally a hoax. And, you know, all of these kind of societally taught harmful 
lessons that we learn, it's when I started to unravel them and uncouple them and develop this new definition of what grief really is. And then as I became brave in that space, I was like, I think I'm going to start posting this on social media. And so I would take little quotes from books that I was reading or write little, we'll call them manifestos, but I would write write these little personal stories about what I was reading and how it related to my life. And I had a lot of interest. I had a lot of traction from people because they knew that I lost my mom for the most part. Every Facebook friend I ever had knew this about me because my mom's grief was on social media. And, um, and people started saying, hey, you should do some more with this because this is new to me too. And it's really important. And probably after about a year or two years or so, I started my own Facebook page. I was like, well, if I ever do, the dream was to write a book. I was like, well, if I ever do write a book, I think Shelby Forsythia sounds really cool. And Shelby Forsythe is my name. So I added two letters on the end and made it like the flower, which is something that my dad planted in our yard when we were young. Oh, I um, that. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's not my given name, but it's one that sounds really good and it rolls off the tongue, I think. I'm really delighted by it. And so I started this page that was just Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide because I had been trained in the grief recovery method, but also in Reiki. And so it's this combination of practical tools, which is the guiding part, but also these nonverbal, very emotional tools, which is the intuitive part. So I called myself an intuitive grief guide. And I just started posting these little tidbits or like books I was reading or things I could recommend for other people going through grief. And it started to gain traction. And I went to a coaching workshop one night at a local entrepreneurs meetup because I was like, maybe I could make a business out of this. All of this was me rolling the dice, very speculative. I was playing in the sandbox. And I went to this coach's meeting and this woman could not take her eyes off me the whole time. Not in I'm hitting on you kind of way, but she just kept staring at me. And at the end, I was like, I'm going to go talk to her. And she's like, I just feel so drawn to you because I have a message for you. And it turns out she was a person who was intuitive as well. She said, I don't know what you're debating right now, but whatever it is, you need to use your voice. And I was like, holy crap, because for the longest time I'd thought about doing videos, like Facebook live videos where I, I talk about grief for five or 10 minutes, then people tune in and leave comments and I can you know, continue recommending books this way or talk about revelations I'd had with my own lost story and to see if it resonated with others. And the very next day I went live on Facebook for the very first time. Wow. And, um, and it went really well. I think like three people showed up, like it was diddly nothing, a drop in the pond, but at the same time, it was one of the most vulnerable things I'd ever done in my life. And over the next six to seven months or so, I got just a little bit more traction, a little bit more feedback and a little bit more perspective on what I was doing. And enough people were like, we want to see this even bigger. Will you please start a podcast? And like, it took a landslide of people, probably like five or 10 people being like, can you, can you do this now? And uh, I, I kind of cobbled together some how-to podcast videos on YouTube. I took some free courses from people and got the equipment set up in my bedroom. Um, and I was like, I'm going to try it and see what happens. And so I started sourcing stories of loss from other people. But I wanted to make sure that the stories were not just death focused and centric because the things that had happened to me, you know, my dad losing his job, me coming out of the closet, my dad's brain aneurysms, reckoning with mortality for the first time, a massive breakup, like these things caused grief and instigated grief, but they were not death events. And so I called the show Coming Back Conversations on Life After Loss. And I tell people we talk about the three Ds mostly, death, divorce, and diagnosis. But we also talk about all of these other secondary losses and tertiary losses and the immediate and the gradual and the surprise things that come as a result of loss. And then the ultimate theme is coming back. How do you come back to life after loss? It's not how do you fix yourself? How do you make it better? How do you recover? How do you bounce back? It's not any of these like listicle titles of 10 ways to fix you know, your life after somebody you love has died. I'm like, this is not what this is. They're real conversations and hard conversations about what life looks like in the aftermath of the very worst universe rearranging thing that has ever happened to you. And it is my, it's my joy. I know you've been on the show as a guest and just being in this space and having these conversations, I, I get to sit down with people and continue to unearth and mine all of this valuable wisdom and then publish it so I'm not the keeper of all of these quote-unquote secrets. I'm not the keeper of this wisdom anymore. I'm just the distributor. I'm just the channel for these big truths and these resources that other people have that I didn't have access to. So it's been a real um, 
the word that's coming to me is privilege, just to be the go-between between people's lost stories and people who are experiencing loss. Like I think that is my ultimate role, is to be kind of a conduit, not even not even the host or the center of the action, but like the person who's guiding you, the intuitive grief guide who's just there beside along the way. Like here's some more stuff for you to look at should you care to experience what this is like in the aftermath of loss. And if this episode doesn't suit you, wait for the next one. It comes out every week. Yeah. Um, it's It's been really cool. And then within the last year or so, it's also developed into a book, which was the next thing that my listeners asked of me is like, will one day all this information be compiled into a book? And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. And so I finally got my dream of turning the name Shelby for Cynthia into a pen name uh, yeah. that I used for my book. And I published a work called Permission to Grieve and it's based on conversations with my community that I've built and with people who've come on the show because we kept revolving around, I mean, for a good seven, eight, nine months, this topic of permission and allowance and being in this space in the aftermath of loss where we let ourselves have the experience that we need to have. And I break it down into three different categories. So we we all need permission to feel emotions. We all need permission to be which is related to identity, whether that's changing identity, identity that stays the same, identity that dies along with our loved ones. And then, I'm sorry, I have a cat (laughs) who's next to the desk. And then the last permission that we need is permission to do, and that's permission to express grief outside of the body. A lot of people are afraid to, you know, put up shrines in their home or run a 5K in honor of a loved one for fear that they'll look like they're still not over it. But permission to memorialize our loved ones is kind of an ancient rite of passage that we've been doing forever as humans to to mark space and time where we have lost things that we've loved. And so it's this really neat book on the societal things that stop us from giving ourselves permission to grieve and tons and tons of exercises and illustrations and stories about how we can regain and harness permission to grieve for ourselves in gentle ways, not in, now you must give yourself permission to grieve everything all the time, or else you're not a good griever. And so it's kind of a death to the image of the perfect griever, but also a death to the things that uh, society stops us from feeling. Right. Yeah, society tends to be so focused on the achievement on achievement and when we're in this grief space that uh, that becomes our new job <laughs> and so it, being focused on achievement isn't isn't a reality at that point and i'm so glad you brought up your book that was actually the next thing i was i wanted to talk about was permission to grieve so so amazing that you wrote this book and i can tell you i've read i've read the book and you are amazing at expressing these deep experiences and and really painting the picture for us of what it felt like what it looked like and and what your what your experience was and it is very impactful and i love that you titled it permission to grieve tell me a little bit about why you decided on to write on that topic. I think you touched on it, but yeah. yeah. Mostly because it bothered me. <laughs> right, right? I have this thing that happens sometimes where ideas will bother me and they won't go away. And so I know I need to, to make them into something, whatever they want to be made into uh, in order for the nagging to stop more or less. And it sounds like I'm being annoyed by creativity <laughs> or the universe or what have you. But I just kept noticing this trend in conversations with death doulas and funeral home directors and people who'd lost a parent or a child or a spouse or, you know, all of these different relationships on coming back. And it was, I needed permission to write a song about them. I needed permission to cry alone in my basement. I needed permission to pull over to the side of the road and all of a sudden realize that I was no longer a good driver because my loved one had died. And that's a change of identity. And so all these things kept coming up. And in interviews with people for coming back, I would keep underlining permission, 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 permission. And I'm like, what is it about permission and grief that we've not yet tapped? What's, what's missing here from the conversation that I somehow need to, again, be the conduit or the channel for? And as 
these permissions kept unfolding and I started having conversations with listeners of the podcast, these three permissions of permission to feel, the emotions that we're feeling, permission to be, change identities or become different people as a result of loss and permission to do, to take grief outside of the body and into the world, kept coming up over and over and over again. And it's really cool how they all make themselves known. What's neat about this book is I think it was kind of a co-collaborative experience. I did not do this alone. Not only did I have support from people who'd been on the show and people who listened to the show in that community way, but also I felt like in a spiritual sense, my own grief and my spirituality and some kind of like higher voice was talking uh, to me as it was happening. And this might get like a little woo-woo for a second, but it's like the words won't leave me alone. It's like they're alive. Mm -hmm. almost. And I was like, I got to put you somewhere because you are just tugging at my pants and lacing my shoes together to make me trip and see this. And it became enough of a pattern and enough of a occurrence that I was like, this needs to be out in the world somewhere. And I always knew I was going to write a book. I just didn't know on what. And then the material made itself known. And that was that was pretty freaking cool. And it's hard to describe to people what it is because it's part memoir. There's my story in there. It's part self-help because there's tools, there's self-questions if you want to ask yourself or if you want to journal along with the book. It's part comic book. I did 26 different illustrations for the book that are all based on experiences I've had or experiences other people have told me about. Um, And then it's also just part, I want to say, part human it's it's a little bit of like that spiritual inspiration that mm, not that we need to keep going but that we need to remember that we're okay and that we're doing okay exactly where we are mm-hmm. yeah so so as we're kind of wrapping up this conversation tell us if there's one other thing that you want to want to talk about that we haven't or but also, I'd also, I'd love for you to share with us where people can find you. Yes. So the best place to find me in all of my work, including the book, is permission to <laughs> permissiontogrieve.com. That's a lie. I've got it on the brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's shelbyforsythia.com, and that's Shelby, S-H-E-L-B-Y, Forsythia, F-O-R-S-Y-T-H-I-A.com. And there's tabs for literally everything for the book. I do offer one-on-one, I call it grief guidance. If you've ever been coached before, or if you've ever been in a therapy session, it's like a hybrid of both, where I pull in those intuitive tools and the grief recovery method tools to guide you along the way, as well as provide resources like books or TEDx talks or things in between sessions that I just have a a brain full of, if that's something that interests you. Um, Something that's coming in the future that I've been requested a lot of, again, I think it's the next frontier is grief courses, although those are currently marinating in my brain. They don't necessarily have a place yet. Um, And I think the biggest thing I always want to share with people is the community aspect of what I do, because there are others of us out there. And you know this as well for being important and coming back from grief and loss. Every single month, once a month, I host a get together on Patreon where I go live on YouTube for an hour and I take grievers questions on grief and loss. And just this past Monday, we talked about the grief of unfinished business or having things be left unsaid, which is really hard. We also talked about how our friends and family tend to infantilize us in grief as if grievers don't know what they're doing. And so they take over doing things for us or making decisions for us because some reason we don't know because we're grieving. I'm like, that's a lie. I'm still a capable human. I'm just really sad right now. Um, and then and then just other conversations as well that just come up at will. So people will honor grief anniversaries. They'll ask about how to have conversations with their siblings uh, you know, in the aftermath of losing a parent. So when can I step out of the mom role and finally just be a griever like you are? Um, how to talk to kids about loss, what to do when pet loss happens in a family. These conversations go in all different directions. And it's something I've been doing for over a year now. And that happens over on my Patreon page, which you can also find on my website, shelbyforsythia.com. There's a community tab where you can find that. And if you're not looking for live support, but just want to be in a fun little Facebook group with people who share their stories and their photos and their questions and hard days, I host a Facebook group that's related to the podcast called The Grief Growers Garden. And that's pretty cool. There's probably about 400 of us in there now. And it's it's grown over the past two and a half years to to honor those who listen to the podcast but also those just looking for grief support who may not have it locally 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. Thank you for being here. You are, you, you talked about being a distributor of information and you are a gift as a distributor. And so we really appreciate what you've done in this community of grievers to really provide some support and it's, it's just amazing. So I just, I just thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a delight. Shelby shared so much of her experience with us, and I love her real and honest depiction of what the pain of loss and grief looks like. In the interview, you probably heard our exchange about swearing on the podcast, which I appreciated her asking, as I always want you to feel like you can listen to the podcast anywhere, with your kids in the car or in the room, however you like to listen to it. That being said, it's important for me to note that Shelby's book is amazingly raw, and the opening chapters do include some raw language. She has a gift for painting a heart-wrenching scene with words, and when you read her words, you will feel like you are there. She also has the gift of offering tremendous compassion and understanding. I think your heart will feel understood reading her words, and I'm certain Shelby would want you to feel heard and loved. Again, you can find Shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, where you will find links to her podcast coming back, to her book, Permission to Grieve, and to her social media groups and pages. These links will also be included in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for joining me today. I'd love to hear your impressions on this interview. And any questions you have for me about grief or rebuilding, email me today at julie at buildalifeafterloss.com. Also, I work with people one-on-one and guide them through the grief and rebuilding process. Let's have a conversation about that and whether that's a good fit for you. Again, you can email me at julie at buildalifeafterloss.com. Remember, I love you. I believe in you. Have a great week. Bye.